It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's September and a man is flying to meet his wife, but the plane will never reach its destination and no one on board will survive. This event will change history, though it's not the event you're likely thinking of. Because though the plane is small, the man on board is well known. He's a powerful man, a builder of great wealth and fame. But what Mohammed bin Laden will never know as his plane crashes southeast of Mecca in late 1967 is that in a few short decades, his family legacy will change from one of construction to one of destruction. From the Fox News Podcast Network. Fox News Rewind, 9-11. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. It was nearly 10 years ago that a bright September day was darkened by the worst attack on the American people in our history. The president did unleash the psychological version of shock and awe with that attack aimed directly at Saddam Hussein himself. We will be focused on finding the al-Qaeda and the Taliban leadership in Afghanistan. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. There is a plane that has been hijacked. It is 20 minutes south of Washington and is headed this way. An incredible plane crash into the World Trade Center here at the uh, lower tip of Manhattan. It's pretty 17 American servicemen killed by two suicide bombers whose boat rammed the USS Cole on October 12th. This morning at 10.30 a.m., the Nairobi, the heart of, the Ni- of Nairobi was actually ripped apart by a bomb. It was an explosion of extraordinary magnitude that ripped through the underground garage beneath the huge World Trade Center complex. Starting in 1979, the Soviets poured more than 100,000 soldiers into Afghanistan. Seeing it as part of the communist creep, America trained and bankrolled the Mujahideen to resist. Episode 1, The Origins of Terror. Osama bin Laden uh, was born in uh, Saudi Arabia for a father who basically came from Yemen. Former FBI supervisory special agent Ali Soufan. His father was a Yemeni Saudi uh, who uh, um, became one of the wealthiest uh, people in Saudi Arabia after the, ro- the, the royal family. Uh, his mother uh, was uh, a Syrian. And um, Bin Laden, um, you know, was the middle child of 52 children uh, that uh, Muhammad Bin Laden had, the father. Um, he lived actually a life uh, without his dad. Uh, his dad uh, died when Bin Laden was young. I think uh, the 
the, the dad died in uh, 67. Kalnaden was uh, very young at the time. And um, his mother and his brothers were basically the family that, uh, that he has. Um, so, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden grew up uh, as a member of uh, one of the wealthiest uh, families in Saudi Arabia. Osama bin Laden was born in Saudi Arabia to a very large, wealthy family and conservative. So um, they were religiously very conservative. AEI fellow and advisor to Critical Threats Project, Catherine Zimmerman. His radicalization process began really, I would say, while he was in Saudi Arabia. He met a preacher, Abdullah Azam, who's actually known as the father of jihad while in Saudi Arabia, and after bin Laden graduated university, was convinced to go to Pakistan to join him in the Afghan Jihad. And it was exposure to the more conservative Salafi and I would say Salafi Jihadi concepts that Abdullah Azam and those around him espoused that really brought bin Laden uh, to be the person that we know today. Ayman al-Zawahiri was an early uh, member of the Muslim Brotherhood, the, the, the dissidents in Egypt. Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace. He was jailed for his opposition to the, to the, to the leadership of Anwar Sadat and uh, Hosni Mubarak. Ayman al-Zawahiri is an Egyptian doctor. He comes from a very uh, wealthy and uh, very rich uh, family. Um, you know, his uh, father was a known surgeon. Uh, his uh, mother was uh, also the daughter of uh, the president of Cairo University and the founder of King Abdelaziz University, which is the only university at the time in Saudi Arabia. His father was uh, an ambassador to few countries. Uh, you know, his uh, great-grandfather or his, uh, you know, his grandfather's brother was one of the founding members of the Arab League. So he comes from um, a really, you know, aristocratic family, if you want to call it. Very educated family, a very well-known family in Egypt. He actually joined the Muslim Brotherhood when he was quite young, when he was a teenager, and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt was very active in trying to transform how the Egyptian government was organized to instill more Sharia law. That's law based on on um, on Islam, the religion. And he rapidly actually became uh, disabused of the idea that the Muslim Brotherhood's path forward, which was nonviolent, was going to be effective. Uh, and you, you see him, he gets rounded up in a, a, an effort by the Egyptian government to quell Islamist dissent. He spends a couple of years in prison, uh, during which time he really came out a, a changed man. Uh, and it's actually notable within the jihadi circles that uh, while he was in prison, he, he certainly spoke to his interrogators about his network. Uh, and facilitated the role of additional Islamists. At a young age, um, he uh, started to be very into uh, Sayyid Qutb's teaching. Sayyid Qutb was uh, an Egyptian intellectual um, early on in his life. He did not uh, show an indication of radicalization. Uh, I think a lot of his, his views uh, shifted after he uh, traveled to the United States and studied in Colorado. Um, he had 
uh, not a lot of good things to say about the U.S., about uh, American culture. Um, and uh, he believed that uh, the U.S. is a nation without values. Uh, so when he came back to Egypt, um, he started uh, to um, kind of um, look into Egyptian traditional values that he found in Islam. Uh, that uh, created a problem between him and the secular government at the time of Jamal Abdel Nasser, the socialist uh, government. And uh, that led to, into a crash um, between, uh, between him and between uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, he was arrested for conspiring against the regime uh, where he was uh, tortured. And, um, you know, and then he was uh, released and then uh, was arrested again uh, for his role in ordering an assassination against Jamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, after that, he was executed. His experience in jail um, uh, created a, a shift in uh, the views of many in the Muslim Brotherhood. So uh, basically, uh, Sayyid Qutb, uh, because of the torture that he endured in prison, he believed that there is no Muslim can torture another Muslim the way that he was tortured. So those people who are torturing him are not Muslims. Uh, they are living in, the, in Jahiliya, which is uh, the time before Islam. Um, and thus, uh, they need to be fought and they need to be uh, killed. And this is where the concept of the takfir came. So we start seeing many of uh, those Islamists who want to declare war on other Muslims to include their own government, using the ideological justification of Sayyid Qutb in doing so. And that's how Sayyid Qutb impacted uh, the thinking of Ayman Zawahiri. But he comes out of prison and understands that uh, he needs to use violence to achieve his aims. Um, and he is part of this group known as the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Uh, and over time, he becomes the leader. Um, but really, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad was never quite successful inside of, of Egypt. And most of that was uh, a reflection of, of both the Egyptian security services and also the violence that the jihadists inside of Egypt were imposing upon the civilian populations. Uh, so you know, this becomes critical to the development of Ayman al-Zawahiri and his idea of how you can be successful in this line of work. 1979 had many events that contributed to uh, everything that we saw later with the rise of um, Islamization, if you want to call it, in the Muslim world. So first, it starts with the Iranian Revolution in February of 1979 and the return of Khomeini uh, to Iran. Um, that uh, created for the first time an Islamic government, an Islamic republic, which was a dream for many Islamists around the Muslim world, uh, even though that government was a Shia government, but it inspired um, Sunni activists in so many different places uh, around the world. Uh, the second one uh, was the Camp David Accord, which really uh, angered so many people in the Muslim world, especially the Islamists, and eventually led to the assassination of the Egyptian President Anwar Sadat 
by um, Egyptian Islamists and the armed forces, and many of them were, uh, you know, caught. And uh, Ayman Zawahiri was one of uh, those people who allegedly conspired to kill Anwar Sadat. Um, the third event that took place um, was the um, seizure by Wahhabi extremists of the mosque in Mecca. And they, you know, kept many, um, um, you know, worshippers hostages until uh, the mosque was liberated by uh, reportedly French troops, uh, French paratroopers, who went and aided the Saudis in, um, in taking back the holy site. Um, the fourth event was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in December of 1979. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Afghanistan's really been at the crossroads of histories for centuries and centuries. It's only been together as a country since about the 1700s, mid-1700s. Fox News senior foreign affairs correspondent Greg Palcott. It's better to describe it as a patchwork of uh, of warlords, chieftains, ethnic tribes, uh, and and divided along sort of geographical lines too. You have the the Pashtuns in the southwest and uh, uh, covering a lot of the uh, desert area down there too. Up in the mountains, you have the Tajiks. Out in the west, it's an area called Herat, a city and and a region that blends right into that country uh, next door, which is Iran to the east. Of course, there's there's Pakistan, and to the north there's Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, China. Even it was really a crossroads of all empires moving in and moving out, and that's how it got its uh, its name of graveyard of empires because people tried to conquer these guys, but they're tough fighters, and uh, they did not go down with a fight, and the other guys did. This was the height of the Cold War. And at that point, there were two predominant ideologies in the world and two spheres of influence, the Soviet communist and the American democratic or capitalist. Fox News Channel correspondent Amy Kellogg. And Afghanistan was, and frankly, as you know, still is a very traditional and tribal society. And it slipped into the Soviet camp after a coup in 1978. And the point of the coup which brought in a communist government, was to modernize Afghanistan. But it became a very repressive situation very quickly. And for that reason, and also for the fact that modernized thing clashed with traditional Afghan culture, there was a lot of, there was a lot of pushback. And Moscow began to worry that Afghanistan might switch sides and start to cozy up to the United States. So it sent in its troops. And a quagmire ensued for about a decade. And many people say it was the USSR's Vietnam and a real drain on finances. It was a death trap for soldiers. And frankly, it, it really was a seminal event, though. I think everyone would agree in the, in the downfall, the eventual collapse of, of the regime, the Soviet regime. 
many countries around the Muslim world saw an opportunity because of the unrest that these Islamists are creating in places like Egypt or places uh, like Algeria or places like Morocco or places like Saudi Arabia with radical Wahhabis now rebelling and trying to uh, take holy sites, uh, you know, um, worshippers as, as hostages. Uh, they saw an opportunity to basically export all their problems and all the radicals that they have to go and fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, you had radical Wahhabis who went there, but also you had Egyptian tech theories who went there. Uh, some people who are so Puritan in their views of Islam and some people believe that that's not enough. You need, if you have a Muslim who is uh, not in accordance to your views of things, that Muslim is an enemy and they need to be killed. So that kind of was the oil and the fire. Uh, these two ideologies merged in Afghanistan and we see that merger causing the explosion that shaped uh, most of our lives. So when Islamabad asked Washington for help in fighting the communist godless uh, soldiers in neighboring Afghanistan, the U.S. obliged. Um, they obliged by sending in aid because they just feared that that there would be further rifts with Pakistan if they didn't. Um, and these holy warriors that the U.S. came to the aid of were effectively the likes of Osama bin Laden. The U.S. had been helping the Mujahideen, had been providing them with money, had providing them with, with arms, including Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, uh, because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And anybody who was fighting the Soviets, the U.S. supported. Well, the United States found uh, that there is a big opportunity uh, to... Um you know, pay back the Soviets for a lot of things that uh, they did to us. Uh, so definitely the U.S. supported the Mujahideen um, and aided them and gave them weapons and, uh, you know, helped them uh, to defeat uh, the Soviets. I think without American help, I don't believe the Mujahideen could have defeated the Soviet Union and uh, the Soviet Union will not have the quagmire in Afghanistan uh, that it had. So uh, from the U.S. perspective, um, it was essential to prevent the Soviets from taking Afghanistan and going all the way down to, um, you know, the Arabian Gulf, the water on the Arabian Gulf. Geography explains why the Soviet Union has sent an army into Afghanistan to dominate that country, and if they could, Iran and Pakistan. So I think, uh, you know, after Pakistan, after Afghanistan, it's possibly Pakistan. And uh, I think uh, it was one of these... Uh, um, decisions uh, in the U.S. government at the time that we need to contain co communism and prevent uh, the Soviet Union from, uh, you know, expanding its geopolitical influence and expanding its territories in, uh, in, uh, in the Gulf region and in uh, South Asia. The CIA was promoting uh, the jihadists in Afghanistan while the FBI in the United States was investigating people who were training to go to Afghanistan. Former assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, Andrew McCarthy. Because that's a violation of a criminal law that's known as the Neutrality Act, which means that when 
the United States is not at war with a country as we were not at war with either Russia or Afghanistan. Uh, Americans are not supposed to uh, participate in uh, warfare activities because obviously that can have the effect of drawing uh, the United States into a conflict. So the, you know, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of acting at cross purposes, I think, between our different um, agencies. And it starts out very early on in the 1980s with the fact that the CIA is promoting the jihad and the FBI is investigating it. Abdullah Azam was um, a Palestinian activist. He was uh, in the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, he was um, an educator. He lectured in different universities, especially in Saudi Arabia. And after the Soviets uh, invaded Afghanistan, uh, he became uh, the main voice uh, uh, for um, jihad in Afghanistan, advocating jihad, asking people from the Muslim world and specifically from the Arab world to go and fight against the Soviets in Afghanistan. He became the godfather of uh, the Arab Mujahideen. And uh, most of the Mujahideen who went uh, to Afghanistan uh, went because of the fatwas, because of the lectures, because of the speeches, because of the writings of Abdullah Azam. And one of uh, uh, those Mujahideen who went to Afghanistan because of Abdullah Azam is Osama bin Laden. There were people who became infamous in later years who were key figures in the recruitment the arming and uh, the financial networking that went into the Afghan jihad. Among them were the blind sheikh and Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was a young millionaire um, and uh, he um, truly believed in uh, uh, helping uh, the Mujahideen and uh, he truly believed that the war in Afghanistan is a duty for every Muslim. Um, and that was basically because of the uh, influence that Abdullah Azam had on Osama bin Laden. So initially, Osama bin Laden was just a financier a person who went there to help and assist the Mujahideen, giving them aid, giving them money. Um, he took uh, some uh, construction equipment from uh, his father's company in order to help them with, uh, you know, road or whatever they need. Um, and uh, he became the person that most of the money in Saudi Arabia, that's coming from Saudi Arabia is funneled through him because he was a trusted individual. Um, and uh, Osama bin Laden's story inspired so many people. This is this rich, super millionaire. His father at one point uh, was even richer uh, than uh, the Saudi government itself. He bailed the Saudi government during uh, the time of uh, King Faisal. And there he is leaving uh, you know, the life of privilege and the life of wealth behind him to go to Afghanistan and support the Mujahideen. There's a particular terrorist attack that was aiming to assassinate an Egyptian government official that ended up killing a, a young girl on the street and caused backlash within the population. And it was the population's rejection of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and its, its competitor but like-minded group, uh, Jamaat al-Islamiyah, which really kind of pushed these Islamists out. So Zawahiri, then leaves Egypt. 
he answers a call, a very early call uh, for in the Afghan jihad for doctors uh, to help with the mujahideen, and he goes he goes to Pakistan. Ayman Zawahiri and Osama bin Laden um, first met uh, in Peshawar, even though there are other stories that indicates that they met in Jeddah in 1986 when bin Laden was visiting Saudi Arabia and uh, and Zawahiri was also visiting Saudi Arabia on some you know kind of fundraising trip for the Afghan jihad. Um, bin Laden um, liked Zawahiri uh, because Zawahiri comes from a very prominent family like uh, Osama bin Laden. He's a surgeon. Um, and also, at the same time, uh, Zawahiri uh, was an Islamic intellectual in so many different ways. A lot of these things bin Laden did not possess. So he saw in Zawahiri an asset, and uh, Zawahiri saw in bin Laden um, also a mean to get to his own end because of the money and the wealth that bin Laden had at the time. It's very interesting to trace their relationship over time. There's this tension that's occurring in the late 1980s between Abdullah Azam, the, the father of jihad, who kind of really brought the ideas of modern Salafi jihadism to light, and Osama bin Laden, who is a young, influential Saudi with connections to financing, which is incredibly important for any organization to run. Uh, and uh, and Ayman al-Zawahiri, who has really cemented his ideas of, of what jihad is um, and was looking to transform Egypt, um, but had fled to Afghanistan uh, as, as a base. Um, and, you know, you see Zawahiri around the circle of bin Laden over the next 10 years. Abdullah Azam's vision was... We're in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. And after the Soviets were defeated, and after uh, the Soviet Union pulled out from Afghanistan in uh, 1989, Abdullah Azam's views were, okay, the jihad is over, now everybody go home. That does not fit with what Ayman Zawahiri's plans for the future are. Ayman Zawahiri believed that, um, you know, now, you know, the Mujahideen defeated uh, one superpower, and now we have to to plan to defeat another uh, superpower. Uh, plus, um, most of the Mujahideen, to include Abdullah Azam, uh, can go back to Saudi Arabia, can go back to their countries. But Ayman Zawahiri cannot go back to Egypt. Uh, many of the Egyptians who were around Ayman Zawahiri and around bin Laden are wanted in Egypt. And the moment they land um, in Cairo, they will be arrested. Uh, you have other groups also, like the Libyan fighting groups or the Algerians and the Moroccans. Those guys were also wanted by their own government. So from Ayman Zawahiri's perspective, the jihad is not over. Uh, we need to continue uh, fighting the enemies of Islam. Abdullah Azam's perspective was, no, uh, we came here for one specific mission uh, to fight the infidel uh, communists, unbelievers. We accomplished that, and now we have to go back. And when the Russians withdrew, they announced basically in 1989 that they were pulling out, and it was clear uh, that that the uh, Mujahideen, very much helped by uh, an international uh, group of nations that included uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia, which uh, did a lot together, not only to uh, coordinate, but to fund the Mujahideen. Uh, when the Soviets said that they were leaving, 
the question was for the, for these Arab Afghans in particular, what do we do now? Once the Soviets were out, the U.S. pulled out of the region, and that, and that is seen as one of the big misjudgments. Chris Wallace that had the U.S. stayed in the fight and stayed on the side of the Mujahideen of the Islamic freedom fighters that that perhaps uh, we wouldn't have have created this enemy. But in that vacuum, the rapidly anti-Western thought and and beliefs of of people like Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri spread. uh, And suddenly, instead of being an ally uh, of those forces in Afghanistan, we become the great Satan. The region was left awash after the war ended. And the war didn't end right when the Soviets pulled out. There was a civil war after that in Afghanistan. But effectively, the region was left awash with weapons and with refugees and children going to madrasas and a new generation of uh, fundamentalists were spawned. There were all of these non-Afghan, essentially Arab fighters who'd come to the region to help bring down these godless communists and they were and they were there and they were fueled up they were pumped up and uh and that was also part of a a general destabilization of the region the idea that this vacuum this interregnum was produced after the cold war leading up until 2001 fox news congressional correspondent chad pergram you know there were there were books and takes written about, well, we don't need to spend as much on intelligence or certainly not on defense because we're not fighting the Soviet Union. I come before you and assume the presidency at a moment rich with promise. We live in a peaceful, prosperous time, but we can make it better. For a new breeze is blowing and a world refreshed by freedom seems reborn. For in man's heart, if not in fact, the day of the dictator is over. They talked about something they, uh, they called at the time the peace dividend. In other words, we, would, we could spend on education and medicine and science and, and, and other things. And that's fine. But brewing behind the scenes, and it took, you know, 11, 12 years to kind of cook this all up, nothing exists within a, back, uh, within a vacuum. And the idea that the United States was so successful through the, the Charlie Wilson effort and the Mujahideen and Charlie Wilson's war, as it was called, of driving out the Soviets, the people who the, who they were basically helping gave haven to Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden in this failed state. Abdullah Azam was assassinated uh, in a car bomb. At the time, it's it was confusing who killed Abdullah Azam. Some people believe maybe it's all these Egyptians who were. Uh, declaring him as an infidel. Uh, Maybe it is because of uh, the internal war among the different Mujahideen. Hikmatyar, one of the leaders of the Mujahideen, was also accused and possibly being behind the assassination. Uh, Some other people claim it might be Russia. Uh, Until now, it is one of these uh, mysteries who killed Abdullah Azam, but he was definitely killed during a time period that was extremely important uh, for um, what's going to happen later uh, with all those Arab Mujahideen who went to Afghanistan to fight against the Soviets. Now their mentor is gone, their godfather is gone, and it was definitely an opportunity uh, for bin Laden to take charge of this movement. The kind of really interesting thing that he did was identifying key people over time 
that have served crucial roles in al-Qaeda. Catherine Zimmerman. Bin Laden had fingers throughout the jihadi world, um, so he really could look for good ideas and then try to operationalize them. I think the most notable thing about that was that you know, everybody in this country was kind of glad to see the Soviets run out of Afghanistan. Fox News senior political analyst, Britt Hume. And we had allied ourselves with the insurgents, with the Mujahideen uh, rebels. And I, don't, I think it didn't occur to a lot of people uh, at that time that uh, Afghanistan would be a source of danger and, and indeed major threat to the United States. It just wasn't on the radar. It's a shot being felt around the world. Iraq invaded Kuwait late last night. And it was not with passionate haste, uh, but really with a heavy heart uh, that I had to commit our troops to Saudi Arabia. I took this action not out of some uh, national hunger for conflict, but out of the moral responsibility uh, shared by so many committed nations around the world to protect our world from fundamental evil. After Saddam invaded uh, Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia felt a threat and they felt uh, that uh, they could be next. Um, so uh, the Saudi government requested the U.S. help uh, to protect Saudi Arabia and also to liberate Kuwait. Uh, many countries around the world uh, established, you know, under U.S. leadership, established uh, a coalition in order to liberate Kuwait and contain uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, when that was happening, Osama bin Laden and many radical Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia were very angered uh, because they believed that Saudi Arabia, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, is a holy place and uh, infidel soldiers and American soldiers should not come over to protect the holy sites and to protect the kingdom. So Osama bin Laden suggested to King Fahd at the time that he will declare a fatwa, bring all the Mujahideens who fought against the Soviets and liberate Kuwait and defeat Saddam Hussein. Osama bin Laden, now looking for new causes, offered the Saudi government to send his jihadis to kick kick the Iraqis out of Kuwait. And the Saudis said, no, we want U.S. military coming in here and basing here to help fight. Amy Kellogg. And uh, Osama bin Laden was massively offended by this, thinking that it was tantamount to an invasion by infidels. We're not walking away until our mission is done, until the invader is out of Kuwait. And that may well be where you come in. At the time, there was a lot of feeling that uh, we went busting in there with our military, even for the purpose of running Saddam Hussein's army out of Kuwait, which he had, you know, which he had, he had invaded. That, um, that we would be hated for that. But it didn't seem to turn out that way. The Kuwaitis, of course, were unbelievably grateful. The Saudis participated very much in it. We were based there. And so for a time, it seemed that, it, and, and perhaps for quite a time, it seemed that the first Gulf War, which was a huge military success, uh, had enhanced the prestige of the United States in the Middle East. That we'd come to the rescue of this small country um, wasn't a poor country, but it was a small country, and that uh, we you know, we come to an aid of an Arab country that had been invaded, and you know the and and that this with the Saudis having fought alongside us, and and allowed us to base our military there, um, that looked pretty. That looked, our, our situation there looked 
looked like it had been very much improved. This morning, I am very pleased to say that coalition efforts are ahead of schedule. The liberation of Kuwait is close at hand. So the U.S. troops came to Saudi Arabia and uh, Osama bin Laden uh, was angered by the Saudi move. He thought uh, it was un-Islamic and it is a violation of the teachings of the prophet that said no infidels in the Arabian Peninsula. Ali Sufan. That created a problem between him and the Saudi government at the time, ended up with him escaping Saudi Arabia and going to Afghanistan. Uh, so the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, um, uh, after Saddam invaded Kuwait, uh, was a breaking point in the relationship uh, between, um, you know, Osama bin Laden and the Saudis. It was the reason why he left Saudi Arabia and uh, the consequences of this, that many of these, um, you know, former Mujahideen, specifically Egyptians and Libyans and Algerians who did not have a place to go to, um, came around Osama bin Laden. And uh, Al-Qaeda went from uh, um, just an idea to an actual organization uh, planning and plotting against the United States. Next time on Fox News Rewind 9-11. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was someone involved in uh, a plot trying uh, to blow up uh, a dozen U.S. jumbo jets. The plan started out as a potential of having a campaign of explosions throughout Manhattan. And ultimately, what they did was settle on the Trade Center. Bin Laden was convinced that the way to get the United States out of the Muslim world was to cause America pain. I don't believe any of us truly understood the impact of the embassy bombings in Eastern Africa. They were horrendous. There was a lot of talk about a new world order and a lot of controversy about that. But to the most Americans, the new world order looked one, like one in which our mortal enemy had been defeated. After Ramzi Yusuf uh, was arrested, he was in a helicopter. They uh, flew next to the World Trade Center and one person told Ramzi, see, it's still standing. And Ramzi said, well, if I had more money, it won't be standing. Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.